welcome to Just Folks Conversations with Emma, a space, a comfortable space where people come to share. You are going to hear personal stories of virtues, victories, challenges, setbacks, accomplishments, observations, and teachable moments, all rooted in spiritual principles. I'm Emma. Come on in. I've been waiting for you. Well, hello, folks, and welcome. Welcome to Just Folks Conversations with Emma. I'm Emma, and boy, oh boy, got a show for you. Uh, you've all heard the expression uh, to wake up. Well, we are going to wake you up. We want you to stand up for your rights. And who's the we? None other than Dr. Lionel Lyles. And really, he's doing most of the waking up. So I'm going to stop talking and let uh, Dr. Lyles take us into part two. So my question, Dr. Lyles, first of all, is how are you today? Michael, no volume. Michael, we have no volume. We'll start over. What? We have no volume. I have, I can, I'm just talking, but I don't hear Dr. Lyles. Can you hear anything, Dr. Lyles? Can no you hear volume? Oh, he can hear me. I can't hear him. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to Just Folks Conversations with Emma, and I'm Emma. Well, boy, do we have a program for you today, an episode that you are not going to forget. You are absolutely going to wake up and stand up for your rights. And the reason is because, as you see, we have Dr. Lionel Lyles with us again. This is episode two. So Dr. Lyles, I'd like to welcome you and just ask, how are you today? I'm doing quite well. I feel good. Wonderful, wonderful. So we're we're having a return engagement, and I'm so happy about that. Um, we've been chatting in the meantime, and oh, I'm holding on to the um, armrest of my chair because you're about to take us on <laughs> a real um, journey. Basically, uh, what we're looking for is a way for, for folks to wake up. Um, and the, the working person, the typical working person has basically been asleep at the wheel. What can we do to wake them up? Yes, what I'd like to do is first of all, show by demonstrating a scenario that everybody knows about that occurred last year during 2020 and before. And this will show that we are asleep and then we can move on out of that scenario into how we might be able to wake up or at least move in that direction. All across America last year, African-American males were shot down as well as females on the streets and in their homes. And 
the white police officers who were the perpetrators were temporarily relieved from their duties, but put on administrative desk work temporarily. And of course, as soon as the social media picked up an incident such as a George Floyd or a Breonna Taylor situation, then people came out of their homes and apartments into the street and they started protesting. And at times and invariably, uh, burning of buildings and looting occurred and so forth. And of course, uh, we had the district attorney filing some charges, a grand jury might have been put together to hear whatever dense might exist or exists that was given to it. And of course, then we had the parent, the mother or the father or both. They're doing a news conference. And during this news conference, the mother is complaining and she's wailing because she has lost her son or her daughter that has been shot down in the street or in their home. And so one, the person who pulled the trigger has to be asleep to do so. The grand jury has to be asleep because most times the perpetrator of the crime is let off without being convicted. Also, the protesters protest for several days, weeks, and then they go back into their homes and their apartments and they return to what I call abnormalcy. They go back to watching television and doing their routines and daily lives. And of course, the mother who has lost her son or her daughter asks this question. How can we work this out? How can we wake up? Because this must not happen to anybody else. It's too painful, even though some remunerations may be given, but that really would not bring back a person's dear one. So this example is a national one that everybody is familiar with and everybody can at least begin to think about the fact that you must, one must be asleep in order to participate in that particular process. So with that, I think we are now ready to take a step in the direction of how we need to wake up. And I have two questions. Okay. I have two questions that I'd like to put before us. So at least we'll know where we are starting with the question. And ultimately we're gonna answer that question before we get to the end. And the first question, which is part of a two-part question is how did systemic racism become an integrated part of 
American daily life through the generations? How did it become an integrated, em embedded part of our mindset and American daily life through the generations? And I, I just wanted to ask here or actually make a point because what you're saying is that we, we are starting with a premise that is racism and it's a systemic form of it. So it's ongoing. Uh, that's the root of these, these issues, these killings and these outbursts of violence that we're seeing. And as we just noted before we started filming, um, Atlanta just experienced an, an outburst of violence. And I think eight people were slaughtered by a lone gunman. Correct. Okay. And so this question that I have just mentioned, when we actually deal with it and in the way in which we're going to deal with it during this discussion and conversation, the viewer will be able to make a link between 200 years ago and the 21 year old who slaughtered uh, six Asian American citizens and two white American citizens. So that was our first part of a two part question. And now I have something I call the psychological common denominator, because I wanna show the second part of this question, everybody who lives in America has felt uh, felt at one time or another this question within themselves. They may not have spoken verbally about it, but they have felt it. So what I'm gonna do is what has been felt I want to put it into words, and that is, how did we devolve? I use the word devolve. How have we devolved into a socially chaotic, anti-life, anti-social, anti-science, uh, spiritual ambiguity, freedom for the haves, and generalized unhappiness and inequality for the masses of have-nots. This is a question. How have we devolved into a socially chaotic, the shootings in Atlanta yesterday. This is chaos. How have we gotten to where we are right now with that? And I, I have a question that we may want to address at the very end, and that is comparing the, the beginning stages of what you're going to present through what we have now. Does that, will it really show a difference? Will it actually be a devolving situation or and then my question is if if it hasn't devolved has it always been like this all along so at the end well once we take a deeper look then we'll be able to address 
which is a good question you're asking as to whether or not uh, the intention that was started out with was a great intention, but something occurred that switched things around a little bit, which allowed instead of evolution, it allowed for devolving, that is to say, moving backward in our conscious awareness. And this is a common national question. And this is why I say there's a common denominator and everybody knows what a common denominator is in mathematics, where you find a number that can go into two other numbers or more an even number of times. So we have a common question about systemic racism. How has it become a part of our mindset? And also, how have we devolved into the anti-life, anti-social, anti-science, uh, freedom for the few, and generalized unhappiness for the many, the masses. And when all of this, we trace it, we'll be able to begin to see that this may have been in the works all along as opposed to just suddenly occurring in 2020 or 2019. Now, social media, when they pick up on this national question, they bring in people and I have compassion for the people that come on uh, CNN and others where they have 60 second soundbite and they gotta talk real fast and quick because they gotta break away for a commercial. And so you don't really get to understand what is going on. What it really means is we stay asleep. We don't really get an opportunity to wake ourselves up. So we're gonna use a particular approach that Malcolm X mentioned years ago. And he said that the best thing that we can do is use the historic method to examine this, these questions. And he said, now I'll quote him, he said, of all our studies, of all of our studies, history is best qualified to reward all research. He said, when you see you have a problem, and we do have a problem. We just said it's socially chaotic. Yesterday, eight good Americans lost their lives for no reason. And all he said we need to do is look at and examine the historic method and see how others all over the world have used it to solve their problem. And once we see how they got their problem straight, then we can work on getting our problem straight. So we're gonna use the historic method to examine where did historic systemic racism come from and how it maintained itself for 400 years without losing any momentum 
but following right through one generation to another generation until we are here talking today about it. And there's nothing wrong talking about it, but we, now we're gonna expose it. People are gonna wake up and then they're gonna be able to see it. So now we got the historic method that we are gonna look at. So where would be a good place for us to start? And I recommend, let's take a look at the Declaration of Independence and the US Constitution. Wouldn't that be a good place for us? Excellent. To... I would think so, because the country, uh, whatever was existed prior to the Declaration and the Constitution was not the United States. So we know we had the uh, was it Confederate, no, gosh, not the Confederation, the, um, those little 13 colonies. I forgot. Yeah, we had the, uh, the American colonies. And, and so um, we start with these two documents. And we can all agree that these two documents are the two that I call the steering wheel of American society that gets us through generations and development from one place and stage to another place and stage until we get to the present. Okay. I think we can all agree that these two documents are the steering wheel. Now I put together automobile metaphor to further clarify what we mean. Now, what is a metaphor except it's a symbolic representation of something different. So we got an automobile and we got the US Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. These are two different things, but the automobile metaphor is going to allow us to see clearly what we might have going on here. And that is, you have a car has a steering wheel. And the steering wheel is important because whichever direction we turn in, that's where we wanna go. And if we have the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, this is our steering wheel. That's good. That's a good direction to go in. I'm ready to go down that road with you. I'll get in that car. But then we also have a GPS system in cars today. And a GPS system is done away with the paper map. You don't even have to look on the map and pull on the side of the road and see where you are anymore. You just put in the address, physical street address, and say, go. And somebody is going to talk to us, right? If you missed your turn, say, oh, no, no, turn around, turn around, go somewhere else, get back on the route, return to the route. So the GPS system is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So if we put that into our automobile metaphor, then we should be moving as a nation, as a people toward harmony, peace, love, tranquility, 
brotherhood and sisterhood for everybody. And that brings up the point when you say people, because the question becomes who thinks who qualifies as the people? Yes. Now you're saying who qualifies that? Yeah, because it almost feels like some of us are not considered the people. <laughs> We're not included in that group. Yeah, so here we go. Now, here, this is where we're getting close. We're we closing in on what you're saying because what you're saying is right on point. Now, the problem we're going to face with our GPS system is something happened. An error message was put in it, and the error message took us off course. It's like that airplane, the Malaysian airliner that went off course some years ago and we can't find it. What happened to it? It went off course. Something happened to the steering wheel and the GPS system. And here we find that something happened to the GPS system, Declaration of Independence and the US Constitution. And so what happened is this. When Thomas Jefferson wrote the beautiful words, Declaration of Independence, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. Among them is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He also wrote 19 injuries in there. And the 19th, injury, and if I could read it, if you permit me to, can I go ahead and read it? Absolutely, but before you do that, um, could you give us a little background information on injuries? You know, how, I, you know, that's not typically associated with the Declaration of Independence. I mean, that's not to my common knowledge. It was written in the document and of course, the parts that we are familiar with are the ones which talk about the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights and so on. Mm -hmm. But there's a fuller consideration in the document. It's several pages long. And in that body, there are these injuries and the one that is of concern to us at this point is the 19th injury. But the, but the injuries refer to what in particular? They refer, they... they refer to things that the British government, King George III, mm -hmm. was doing against the American colonies. Okay. Putting some difficult things on them, taxation and, uh, without representation and uh, taking products and not getting full payment for some of them and so forth. Mm -hmm. And the one that is of very high interest here is 
Thomas Jefferson wrote, and I quote, King George III waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people whomever offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. And when this was written, Britain was heavily involved in the international slave trade. And so Thomas Jefferson had the intention of ridding the American land of this kind of menace or this kind of evil, if I could use that word. So he wrote this and he turned it into the Continental Congress who was considering the development of the constitution, the writing. And when he turned it in, all of the injuries were accepted except the 19th. The 19th was deleted. Now you're saying that Thomas Jefferson in his mapping out the grievances that the colonies had against the British empire and King George III in particular also identified specifically identified slavery, the slave trade, and the death and, and torture of people who were uh, captured as a result of being part of the, this British empire. He acknowledged that that was part of the original constitution. That was the 19th injury. Yeah. They were, okay. Yes, in other words, Thomas Jefferson was saying to the Continental Congress when he wrote the 19th injury, this is what King George III was doing in the, in the British Empire, the Commonwealth. It was so big, it said the sun never set on the British Empire. It was that big. And he was, in, he was engaged in the capture, the torture, the taking of peoples of color around the globe at, the known, at that time and putting them into bondage. And the focus was on people of color. They recognized, they knew what they were doing. It was not yes. accidental. That was intentional. Yes. Okay. Yes. So when this was deleted, remember the GPS system, the steering wheel is the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, and had the 19th injury stayed in, this would have prevented, inhibited, prohibited an American slavery institution from ever taking root or getting started 
on the North American continent. But with that one stroke of a vote and pen of saying, we'll keep one through 18 grievances against King George, but we are going to stay with him on the 19th. So, but you were able to quote what Jefferson said. So that means there's a written record somewhere. Yes. Yes. Now I can give you the reference if anybody wants to go to the book and read it for yourself. Okay. And if we'll you if you allow me to, I will give it the author, the name of the book that I took this information from is called American Anthem, colon, Modern American History. I repeat, American Anthem, Modern American History, published by Hope Reinhardt and Winston, New York, 2007. And the 19th injury appears in that book on page 41. The authors are Edward Ayers, E-A-Y-E-R-S, and Robert Schulzinger, S-C-H-U-L-Z-I-N-G-E-R, Jesus F. De La Teja, T-E-J-A, and Deborah White Gray. These are the authors of that book. They published it in 2007. The 19th injury is on page 41. And you can go and study it and see all the injuries. I just took out the 19th because I wrote the book, Neoliberalism, Economic Policy and the Collapse of the Public Sector. And in my book, I have it quoted on page 17. When I was doing the research for that particular document, that book. Okay. Well, we will add those notations to the um, notes and, and yes. Links. Okay. Now, once this occurred, you might say, well, why did they do that? Why would, uh, why would I be sitting in the Continental Congress, Lionel Lyles and Emma uh, Brody, and we decided to say, no, no, let's take that out. And so we were saying, well, why would we want to take it out? What is it about us that would make us say we like one through 18, but not 19? And so the reason it was taken out is because the quote founding fathers, the framers, most, if not all of them, were a part of a certain class. And the class they were a part of is called the elite American planter aristocracy ruling class. I repeat, they were a part of the elite American 
planter aristocracy ruling class when the Declaration and the Constitution was written. So they were the, the landowners. They were the landowners. Their parents, when they came over from England, they didn't come over with an empty suitcase. Okay. They came over with some resources. Mm -hmm. They got their hands on land, significant amounts of land. And they are the ones who wrote these beautiful documents that have been tampered with and that's steering in the direction that it has been steering in. Now, the first 12 presidents actually owned African slaves. And if you permit me, I will name some Please. of them. Please do. George Washington, 1789 to 1797, when he was president, he had 600 or more African slaves. John Adams, 1797 to 1801, he hired slave servants to work for him. He hired them, he didn't pay them, he hired a broker to bring them to him so that they could work for him and he paid the broker, not the slave. Thomas Jefferson, the writer, author of the Declaration of Independence, 1801 to 1809, he had 600 or more. James Madison, 1809 to 1870, 100 or more. James Monroe, 1817 to 1825, 75 or more. John Quincy Adams, 1825 to 1829, he had nine or more. Andrew Johnson, Jackson, I'm sorry, Andrew Jackson, 1829 to 1837, he had one. William Henry Harrison, 1841 to 1845, 29, took over once Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, 1865 to 1869, he had nine. And while Abraham Lincoln was alive as president and he was the vice president, he had one. While he was actually serving as the vice president of the US and Ulysses S. Grant, 1869 to 1877, he had one. African slave. So with this kind of record, we Excuse can- me. With with Grant, what, what year again did he have slaves? Uh, a slave? 1869 to 1877. How could he have a slave at that point? 1869. 
after the end of the Civil War and after the emancipation, uh, the record shows that he had won. Now, don't get me wrong. 1865 to 1869 is not a far, the apple is still on the tree. It didn't even fall off the tree. Okay. That's just four years after the paper was distributed, this quote, Emancipation Proclamation. But he still had that particular slave under his supervision. In other words, he didn't let that slave go. That's what I'm saying. I hear you, and I, I just don't have words, that's all. <laughs> now, the thing that most of our viewers are going to be struck by is how valuable. You see, we talk about Black Lives Matter and so forth today, but look how valuable Black Lives Matter during this time. And let me give you an example. In 1850, one African slave was worth $450 to its owner. Now give you some perspective. There were 8.6 million white people in America by 1850, thereabout, roughly. Okay. And their annual per capita income was $110. That's three times less than the value if I owned one African slave. Hmm. So if I own one African slave, I'm more wealthy than someone who worked all year for $110. Now, let me carry it one step further. What would one slave value purchase at that time? One slave value at that time could purchase a mansion, for instance. If we translate what $450 in 1850 into 2016 dollars, it equates to $195,000. Which means in 1850, if I had one slave and cashed that slave in and I wanted to buy or build a mansion, I could do it but I couldn't do it on my average annual income of $110. But with $450 multiplied by, let's say Thomas Jefferson's 600 or more slaves, that's a pretty wealthy man. Millionaire by today's standards. Yes. And talking about a millionaire, good point. From 1806 to 1860, the relative value of one slave, African slave went from 
$200,000 to $340,000. So the value continued to increase as time went by. In fact, the Southern Confederacy kept England's textile industry operating for several decades, almost a century. England depended upon the Southern economy for cotton. We've heard about King Cotton. That's where it got his name from. I mean, as much cotton that could be sent to England, it was quickly turned into clothes that was then sold all over the world and so on. But when the Civil War came along and broke all that up, England went into a depression almost because he couldn't get no more cotton. So all of his factories that dealt with this began to shut down. And that is because there were no more slaves, African slaves to produce the cotton and so on on that scale. Mm -hmm. But in short, this is why the 19th injury in the GPS system was thrown out in order to keep and allow the American slavery institution to take foothold on American soil. It couldn't have done that if the Continental Congress had rejected and deleted all the 19th, I mean, kept it, I'm sorry, kept the 19th injury intact. So all this money that I just mentioned wouldn't be available to anyone. You'd have to get out there and roll up your own sleeves and pick your own cotton and grow your own corn and build your own wagon and clear your own land. One tree by one tree. And if you want 600 acres, you got to take every tree off of it, dig up the roots. That's a lot of work. That's what the African slaves did. So they, they built it. Now, during this time, King George III, white women were not considered uh, able to vote. They didn't have the right to vote when all of this was going on. And it wasn't until Susan B. Anthony in the early 19... Hundreds, 1920 or 25 or 30, that the white women even had gotten the right to vote. They couldn't even vote. So this was a really patriarchal society at that time. And so this is where we get the class, the American planter elite, landed ruling class, 
the 19th injury deleted. We keep the American, we get the American slavery institution. And of course, all of this created one big problem that we can now answer our initial questions. Where did systemic racism come from? How did we get a socially chaotic society that's anti-life, anti-science, uh, anti-spiritual, ambiguous, disdain for the finer arts, our higher self. So what happened is once the 19th injury was deleted from the Declaration of Independence, it automatically instantly institutionalized, and we need to write that down, it institutionalized the American slavery system. Mm -hmm. If it was rejected, 19th injury, we wouldn't have an American slavery system. Had they accepted the, the, uh, the 19th injury? Yes. They, they did reject it, but had they, they accepted rejected it? Had they accepted it, I'm sorry. Thank you for correcting me on that. The second thing is the institutionalization of systemic racism. This is when it was institutionalized. It was embedded. Remember I asked that at the beginning? Mm -hmm. How did it get integrated, embedded, and ingrained? This is how it got ingrained and embedded in the American structure in the American mindset. So this set the mind, this set the mind. Mm -hmm. Say move the dial, move the mindset. This set the American mindset for the next coming century and the next coming generations. So we have the institutionalization of American slavery system, where a whole three to four, five million people were considered to be actually non-existent, which we'll talk a little bit about in a minute. And then the systemic racism. And what systemic racism is, it's a thought. We can't go find in the Constitution, this is Article 2, which, pro, which actually calls for the promotion of systemic racism. No, it's not going to be seen like that. Systemic racism is a thought, and then it generates a behavior. It's manifested as a behavior. So if you have the American slavery system, you're gonna have to keep it going. So you have to 
systemically do things to keep it going. You got to tell the 8 million white people and then the 10 million white people, look, these are not good people. These people with dark skin, they're not good. They're some bad people. They are bad actors. We don't, I don't want you nowhere around them. Stay away from them. They're not human. So that's systemic racism. A behavior is being created. Stay away from them. When I was coming along in my childhood in high school, uh, I went to a segregated high school. And a whole generation, my generation, 1966 to 1968, there's a whole generation of white peers of mine in Alexandria, Louisiana, who I do not know today. And they don't know me. This was set in motion in 1776, when the 19th injury was kept around, which was held on to. So I'm the recipient of not knowing my white sister and my white brother. And the only way I get to know them is they look at me with strange eyes and they wanna hit me. And I didn't do them anything because we are all the same, you see? But they don't know, this is what we mean when we say waking up, we gotta wake up. So the deletion of the 19th injury voided. Now this is a big statement I'm gonna make. The 19th, the deletion of the 19th injury voided Jefferson's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the Declaration of Independence for all people of color for all times in America. And it's been maintained structurally as well as behaviorally, which we call systemic racism. So now when people come on the social media platforms at six o'clock hour and all day long, if they would just deal with this truth, they would do more good for the American people, as they want to call them, than bringing people in and they talk for 60 seconds or a minute about, well, you know, systemic racism is, is what our problem is. And, and we need to try to do something about that and, and make some reforms and get this straight. But you can't do that without knowing what Malcolm said by looking at the historic method and see what we need to do and see how we got thrown off the track so we can get what? Back on the track. And that is such a valid point. Um, and that's where the education system falls down because what you're sharing with me and we're sharing with the world basically is not what's taught in school. You know, had I not had this conversation with you, I mean, I might've come across the information, but 
it's not likely I would, you know, dug in to find it myself. Because um, I really just didn't have a clue. And, and the conversations that most of the, the public has is very much centered in the present. And so if you really don't know what your history is, if you don't know, if you can't really define the problem, if you can't see the truth of what it is, that there's no way to address it. And pretty much what we've been applying have been band-aids, which is what I really appreciate about what you're doing, because this does wake people up. You know, you when you understand that uh, you've been poisoned and you see where the poison is coming from and it hasn't killed you yet, then you make moves to to eliminate that, to stop that. So, um, yes, it's like Malcolm said once when I was 15 years old and I was listening to him make a speech and I was all mesmerized and he said I had been bamboozled. I had been duped. I've been had. I said, now what is Malcolm saying to me? What he's basically saying to me is, you need to dig into this. He was saying to me then, as a 15-year-old, what we're saying now to the 15-year-old who might tune in and view, or the 75-year-old who needs to tune in because you're never too old to learn. You're never too old to get it. You know, this is another kind of technology. This is not a rocket science thing. This is life. This is reality. This is our life. It's like this, the show, This Is Us. Is that the name of that show? I this is so. our life. <laughs> this is us. But you know what? If you look at what's going on today, we have what is called a social divide. This is the most divided nation we've ever had. You've heard that. Yes. You've also heard that uh, this is the sharpest, the economic difference between the haves and the have-nots have ever been. It's never been that much of a division. The separation of the races has never been more sharp than it is today. And the creation of, you, you know, the separate but equal thing. The Supreme Court ruled on this thing back in 1890s thereabouts and said that we're gonna have, we're gonna keep the races separate, but we're gonna make everything equal. So that's a divide. That was, that's a divide. And then here come Thurgood Marshall, when he got on there, or before he got on there, the Supreme Court, and he had the lawsuit and he got the board versus Brown versus the Board of Education, and that was successful. But then we still had folk going to school in one place and other folks going to school in another place and so on. And, and something about that particular decision, the wording that they used, and it took maybe 45 or 50 years for people to actually wake up to what the, the wording was with all deliberate speed. 
And yeah. that was coded language. And I think everyone who, or white people understood that. Yes. Speed is one thing, deliberate. <laughs> well, let's really, take a look at that. Yeah. Let's take a look at it. And if we got it, if we, in other words, we got to tamper with the GPS system. Mm -hmm. So like we said, during the first part is if we dealing with a deck of cards and if we playing with 48 and we supposed to have 52, mm -hmm. then something is not right. We're not going to be able to win this game. It's not going to be just, it's not going to be fair. And so here we have the structure of the American constitution and American political life. And if we take a look at just a few things, during this 1776 to 1793 time period, we got the three-fifths compromise. Every white person and every person in America who's gone to a public or a private school have heard about that. And basically what they heard about me is, hey, you three-fifths of the person. You're not a, he's not a whole person. Stay away from him, watch out. Stay away from her. It's just three-fifths. And basically what that meant was the Southern slaveholders said, we got all these slaves, so we got to make some more good use of them. So could we, Mr. Northern, politicians count three of them out of every five toward taxation and representation. That means you could give us more taxes for our schools down South so that our children can have good schools to go to. You say, yeah, yeah, you can do that. We'll incorporate in 1787, the three fifths compromise that's written into the documents of the United States government. Article four, section two, clause three. We got the Fugitive Slaves Act. And the Fugitive Slaves Act, this is in the constitution. If somebody down south and they decide to run away, if African slave get away, and somebody catch him in Maine, it was a federal law by constitution, edict, that this person had to be returned to his rightful property owner. See, this is institutionalized. This is, this is not like, well, we, today we'll try to do it tomorrow. We don't know what we're gonna, we'll catch him today, Tomorrow, let's let them all go. However many you catch tomorrow, forget it. No, this is, this is law. It's like your driver's license. You need it today, tomorrow, next month, next year, and you can't let it expire. 
So we can't let the Fugitive Slaves Act expire. We got to keep tracking them so that if anybody gets away, we can return them to their rightful, so say, owner. This is in the structure. It's institutionalized. You got the Missouri Compromise in 1820. Say, well, you know, we can let you have uh, slavery expanded into the Missouri Territory up to the 36th parallel, it's 36 degree parallel. And then we'll let Maine come in as a free state. He said, okay, that sounds good to us. Fine. So we have that. That's institutional. This is passed by the Senate. You know, where are all these constitutional scholars when they need to be doing the constitutional study? You see, they need to come on these shows and, and talk about this. And we're challenging them too. Hey, Absolutely. let's sit down. Let's sit down and talk about this. This is what is in the books. We're not making these things up. Every American who has ever lived and gone to school have heard about the Missouri Compromise. I had a teacher to teach me that in the 12th grade. The Kansas-Nebraska Act. Now, this is a big one. This one is really cool in the sense that it done away with the Missouri Compromise. Said so we don't want that no more. What we want is the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And what that means, any state, new state, it can do anything it wants. If it wants slaves, Africans, that's fine with us. This is what the Senate passed. You can do it. So what it did was it gave early birth to states' rights. It gave early, early birth to popular sovereignty, meaning by the time the Civil War was finished and the Reconstruction failed, then the Southern states had already gotten ready for popular sovereignty. We are gonna roll back like Walmart. We're gonna roll back these prices. So what did they roll back? They rolled back the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th amendments. When I say roll back, it's still on the books. Uh, the African American is formally freed after the Civil War. That's still in the Constitution. But the question is, how free are we? How free are white people? You see? And then you have the 14th Amendment, which grants the citizenship and equal protection under the law. But popular sovereignty says equal protection for who? That's why, unfortunately, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. 
because he was not going to allow the Southern slaveholders to maintain their power that they had before the Civil War started. He was going to break that up. They had to take a loyalty oath. You had to have so many percent of your population willing to go along with these amendments and that African, the newly freed African American would then be full participants in everything and all rights. Like the 15th amendment, we had the voting rights. Look what has happened to voting over the years, but look what has happened to them today. Right now, as we speak, 43 states got 250 bills designed to roll back the voting rights of African Americans and people of color. Mm -hmm. Now, so the question is, have, has anything really changed since the beginning um, of the, the beginning of the country? Because when we look at the structure and the intention of the structure of the, the country's governance, um, they never intended for us to be participants. They did intend for us to be the workforce. Um, I really don't see much difference now. I, I do, I, I, I'm aware that Tennessee as of last night was still having a debate in their state legislature about the, um, the legality of slavery because it's still in their state constitution that you can be enslaved as a penalty for being imprisoned. Mm. And the debate is, you know, should we take it off the books or not? As yeah. if it's a question. Right. So they're holding on to that, you know, very consciously. So, you know, some people are very much awake. Um, and I would say they're the folks who have a full understanding of what the, what the founding fathers intended. They're very awake. They, they understand the system. They um, have benefited from it. Um, they feign uh, innocence and and complete, uh, I would say, uh, lack of knowledge of any of, of the underpinnings of, of how the government was organized. But none of them would trade places with us. I mean, you can ask them, well, you want to be treated like a black person, and uniformly, the answer is, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, given that, um, there are some people who are awake. What what our job is to do is to wake up those of us who think that um, there are other issues. You know, when when you're what you're really able to demonstrate is that there the structure was always designed to um, hold back a particular segment of the population, right? And to, to to keep certain folks within a a groove, really. You know, just like that. Um, without the possibility of uh, advancement, 
and the crumbs that have been dropped. I hope I'm not sounding too bitter about this, but you know, as my eyes are being, you know, as the, as the fog is being lifted, um, you know, it, it does. It's frustrating. You know, you know that there are quote good people everywhere, but when you look at the structure, you know, generation after generation after generation of how people are are functioning. It's it's disappointing. Well, yes, yet at the same time, it is giving us a way. Well, are you still there? Yeah, okay. I'm still here. There was okay. something came through, <laughs> okay. unfortunately. But as I was about to say, it mm -hmm. gives us in the Constitution, and I don't know, I can't, I'm paraphrasing, but it says, and I'm sure you might have read this passage, it says, if at any time that the government that has been set up by the people to serve the people's needs reach a point where it no longer does that, it is the right of the people to examine their situation wakefully, wakefully, not sleepily, but wakefully and make whatever necessary changes that are needed in order that all people, you see, we can go on in and say, tell it like it is, that when the African slave finished everything in 1865, the unpaid labor that they put out that was taken from them equals to $4.3 trillion. That's three times more than President Joe Biden's American rescue plan is, that everybody is saying, whoa, this is a whole bunch of money. Woo, wow. 4.3 trillion. That's enough money to buy all assets in America today. So when we talk about, you know, how do we feel? Uh, this is making me feel uneasy. I'm saying, hey, my ancestors built America and everybody knows it. The Native American Indians own the land and everybody knows it. And so the Native Americans and the African Americans, they are not opposed to sharing the Native Americans are not opposed to sharing with the African Americans and the Native Americans and the African Americans are not opposed to sharing with the white American immigrants. I mean, that's how it is. Mm -hmm. But then if we got one of those parties saying, it's not our land, we didn't build it, but we own it. And I'm saying, okay, what is wrong with this picture? You know, something is wrong with the picture. 
And so, for instance, it's like our friend, Senator Mitch McConnell. He said, well, you know, we weren't back there then. We, 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 weren't, we weren't alive during this period that we are discussing today. So we are not responsible for what happened. But we did give you President Obama. You're not happy about that? Uh, we did give you the Civil Rights Bill. You're not happy with that, you see? And so my response to my friend, Mr. Senator Mitch McConnell, is I know you were not alive at that time, but your ancestors were. And you have some inheritance, sir, that has flowed through the generations which you now have in your bank account. Therefore, are you willing to give that back since you were not physically back there, but the money that was taken was physically in existence and it still is in your bank account. You see? So, that's not an argument. That's what we mean when we say, wake in up, wake up. Emotionally, it could throw a lot of people up. Oh, you're right. He was not alive. Mitch McConnell wasn't alive in 1840, so he's not responsible. Of course he's responsible to the extent that I have to be responsible for my lineage. And if my lineage has injured the 19th injury, a group, then I gotta admit that. I can't not deny that, I must admit it, you see? So, yeah. And so we have this, this embeddedness. We have this systemic, that's what we mean. Systemic is structural. We ought to just stop saying systemic and say structural deficiencies, structural social deficiency that we need to correct. And if we have termites in the house and they've eaten up some two by fours, we gotta go in and deal with the structure. We can't say this is termite-ism we got to go in and take out the two by fours that are no longer good and replace them with some good ones and then see what we can do to keep the termites in their place and not in the wrong place. You see? Well, we have quite a few termites that we're dealing with right now. <laughs> Everywhere. We've been flooded with termites. Um, yeah. As you know, evidenced by the previous occupant of the White House. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, what's interesting is President Millard Fillmore in 1850 to 1853, he said, like Mitch McConnell said, I'm going to sign the Fugitive Slave Act, and I'll quote, I'll read what he said. He said he will use federal troops 
to enforce it. It is an existing evil for which we are not responsible. And we must ensure it and give it such protection as is guaranteed by the Constitution. This is what the president, Milford Fillmore said. So the constitutionalists in the Ivy League schools, and I don't know, do they not see this information? Or is it just the people that go to HBCUs and other places that see it? I mean, I know they see it. Well, it seems to be a justification though. Um, it's a, a justification of enslavement and that yeah, mentality. It is. So yeah. They're now, well aware of it, that maybe that accounts for um, uh, Senator Hawley and people of that nature. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a young guy. He's, you know, yeah. he's Yale or Harvard, one of those, you know, Ivy League schools. Um, seemed to have had a bright future, but yet he is, you know, gung-ho for, I guess, taking us backward as, as quickly as he possibly can uh, manage that. Um, yeah. Well, he, and I don't know him personally, but I can say anybody who allows their mind to open and be expanded to a new size or a new dimension. He wouldn't be able to say these things and do the things that he's doing. And the same thing for all the senators in the Senate. If they understood, they wouldn't be able to do the things that they are doing. The lives that were lost yesterday in Georgia, the six Asian Americans, this young man could not have done what he did if he had sat with a teacher, a real teacher who understood this information and opened his mind up and say, the road that you're thinking about is a dead end, is hurtful. You need to get in touch with your spirit and move accordingly, learn who you are. These people have done you nothing. You are not short of oxygen. They're not taking all the oxygen from the universe and you are gonna be the last one and there are no more ventilators. You are gonna breathe. So therefore, allow the, your fellow, fellow man and fellow woman to breathe as well. There's enough oxygen for everybody. That is yeah. such a val valid huh? point. That is such a valid point. And, and to expand on that, there is enough of everything for everybody. You know, there Absolutely. really is no, there's no lack, there's no limitation there there is everything on this planet that all of us need to survive in abundance yes it's the, the mindset that many people have that there is not enough 
that causes yes. them to be greedy, to hoard, not to share, to demean others, to justify negative and destructive actions because they think they're surviving. They think they're preserving their own lives. And so yeah. uh, earlier in the, the discussion you were saying, um, you mentioned this term and I wrote it down, um, the spiritual ambiguity, spiritual yes. ambiguity. And that's really, really interesting. And, and it's, um, it's key to understanding what people are doing because under the guise of religion, um, people are making terrible decisions. Um, they're, they're allowing their, their humanness to, to be the, their ego, to be the sole arbiter of the, the decisions that they're making. Right. And, and, and there's, it's almost like being in a silo because there's a huge number of people I was just reading about uh, pastors in the, um, the um, evangelical movement who have yeah. given up their churches because their, their congregants have decided that they want to be maskless and they don't want to do, um, they don't want to uh, take the, uh, the vaccine, they deny science completely as if God's not powerful enough to have created the dinosaur. You know, they put limitations <laughs> on, you know, on what's spiritually possible because they're right. seeing a human lens completely. So um, there's a, a lot of work that has to be done, um, but it's all doable. And yes, with, um, the understanding that literally and figuratively as well, everything does work together for good. Uh, and that God's, um, God's vision so far exceeds what we're able to comprehend that, you know, we're, we're on this little planet, <laughs> this teeny yeah. bitty, itsy bitsy little planet in the midst yeah. of a universe that's so vast, we can't even yeah. really um, grasp the, the vastness of it. And you know, yet we think that that's all that there is because it's, we're based on this planet. Yeah. Uh, everything is possible, and I, yeah. I suppose you know we come through this this earthly experience looking to learn things, and um, so this this is a very busy classroom. This planet, you know, everybody is on a, a journey, and. You know, we'll each of us will learn what it is we need to learn. Yeah. Or else, I guess maybe we have to do it again. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you are absolutely correct. Uh, is what undermines and limits the spirit of the human being is once the structural institutionalization process of systemic racism and then in the institutionalization of a cruel American slavery system. And then if this is taught to people, then what it does is it limits the listener, the baby in childhood from 
you can't develop your spirit, my child, if you hate your brother and your sister. You can't do that. So from the cradle, because of this kind of thing, then we got the spiritual ambiguity because then the person grows out of childhood into adulthood confused. I feel like I'm a spirit, but my mind and my intellect, I have been taught that these other spirits are not spirits. So how can I be a spirit and they are not one? <laughs> so that is what they call in, in the scientific research a conundrum, whatever that means. Hmm. It's some situation that is not, it shouldn't be, but it is. There's some dissonance, some cognitive yeah. dissonance going on. Right, right, right. Yes. So, yeah. So I think we're going to work that because all that we need to get going to work this thing out is to get some love going when the babies are born. That's first thing. Let's take care of the babies. And then us older folk, let's get out of denial. And first of all, learn that, yeah, we are spirits. Come on. And since we're in human form, we got to eat. We got a house that we need to live in. So let's get together and put that together. And, and, and make sure everybody got a place to sleep. And then you got a place to sleep, you got food to eat, you don't you get sick, you go get you some medicine, and then take you a little vacation. And then come on down here and let's sit around the campfire and then we let's just talk about our spirit. And that's what the big goal is. But we got some termites, as we said, some smallness, minute. We call them cretins, cretinism. You got some cretin minds, some small minds mm -hmm. who says, I can't eat all of this, but I want it. And I say, well, you know, on the other side of the table, we got 10 people hungry. Let them eat it. No, I don't want them to eat. So that's negating spirituality. So yes. to give those other 10 people who are in need of that food, the food, their spirit is at work. It's at work. It's applicable and practical. And that's what it's, it's supposed to be about. And so we are, as I say, we, we're in the third grade in America. <laughs> Politically, uh, we're in the third grade. But as we increase our awareness, we release our spirit. See, if we increase our awareness, we will release our spirit. We free. As they say back in 1830, 
we free. Mm -hmm. If we increase our awareness, we will release our spirit. And so that's what we are about talking about waking up and standing up for our rights, for our spirit and who we are. We just not, as Bob Marley said, a grain of sand on the seashore. And we are not what they tell us, but we are more than that. We are infinite in our wisdom and our abilities. But Milford Fillmore, President Milford Fillmore, he was a little prophet. He predicted that we were going to have trouble in 1850 by 1960, a century later. And this is what he said. He predicted that within a century, by 1960, the civil rights era, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, Rosa Parks, and all of the other ones, Fannie Lou Hamer, everybody, black and white, would give birth to a conflict of races with all the lamentable consequences which must characterize such strife. He knew you can't have this kind of system, this structure, and be able to say, let's sit down at the table of peace mm -hmm. and sisterhood and brotherhood. And like Dr. King said, let freedom ring from the highest mountaintop, you know? So that's what, that's what I'm very excited and it's going, it's happening as we do what we do. Yes, and I also would like to add that because uh, so much has come to light, it is now being addressed, uh, which is, you know, I go back to, you know, the big picture and everything working for good. Um, the 45th president, by a number of standards, was not very successful as a president of a country, mm -hmm. but his presence and his uh, expression of things that he thought and believed uncovered a multitude of sins that mm. the, the sunlight can now reach. You know, we can now examine. Um, it's it's pretty clear what people are thinking, and of course, you can't really address an issue unless you get all the facts about it. And so we, you know, that era, that era, those four years, really yes. brought to light, you know, a number of the things that many of us have felt intuitively, but didn't really have solid evidence that other people were thinking and operating under. But we now know that to be true and we can see it. So, right. um, you know, that leads to um, solutions. And it is, you know, growth is not easy. Um, you know, it's yeah, challenging yeah. and it's uncomfortable, yeah. but you know, that's the process. And uh, I dare say in another 
the next era, whatever that is, you know, people will look back on this time period and say, yes, it was difficult and was tough, but they did rise to the occasion, you know, and they, they worked toward a better future. And I really believe that that's possible for all of us. And we Correct. have to hold on to, to that vision in order to achieve it. So, yes, I, I see it happening. Write me, sign my name on that sheet of paper when you, <laughs> when you type it up, put my name at the bottom, I'm, I'm in. I, as they say, I'm all in with that. Yes. So, yes, <clears throat> I, I believe that uh, just in the way of just for the viewer, so the viewer can understand where we started and where we are right at this moment. Mm -hmm. Where we are, we ask the question, how did we devolve and how did systemic racism uh, get through the generations to right now. And we talked about the 19th century and it was rejected by the Continental Congress. And so that opened the door for the American Slavery Institution and systemic racism behaviors. And then all of the troubles and inequalities that you can think of and conflicts between the different groups was able to upsurge and uprise. And so now, now with that information, uh, I think the mind can wrap itself around that and then take that and look closer and uh, act upon it, you know? You're more, as they say in Baltimore, be more, you are more than you think. If you give your op yourself an opportunity to think. <laughs> What's that saying go? The philosophers say, I think, therefore I am. I am. Yeah. Take heart. Yes. Well, well, this has been, I'm glad I had my seatbelt on <laughs> for this ride. It has been a very exciting, interesting, mind-expanding uh, session, this, this episode, episode two. And I, I know we're going to do future episodes, so I'm looking forward to uh, our next, you know, our next discussion, our next conversation. But I yes. certainly, certainly want to thank you, Dr. Lyles, for uh, being the, the, the beacon of light uh, so that you can wake up all of us, help us to really, you know, to gain and develop that awareness that we need in order to make good decisions and to have the hope that we can move forward because now we are, we're gaining some tools to work with. Um, yes, I, was, I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for having me to allow me to share with you and the audience, um, whatever it is that I could share. And I just want everybody to know that I'm learning too. So it's not like you reach a point 
and the tree stops growing. But it, every season, there is a reason because there's some new leaves. Mm -hmm. So we're coming into spring now and uh, the trees will grow and know more. All we have to do is stop and listen mm. to ourselves. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wiles. This has been wonderful. Um, I guess we can sign off now. This, yes. This, this has been a really rich, delicious meal, I say. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and a very exciting ride. And I'm certain uh, this, this particular episode warrants a couple of views. And so folks are going to, I'm sure, take this in bite size, you know, pieces yeah. and, and marinate, let it marinate a bit. So I know. I know okay. that's right. Well, until next time, I guess we'll get into a little bit of COVID-19. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. And so that would be kind of what the, yeah, that would be kind of what the, the situation yes. would We've be. Got the documentation right here. We're going to have yeah. a wonderful discussion about that. Um, yeah. So looking forward to talking to you soon. So have All a right. pleasant well, afternoon. Yes, and you do the same. And uh, I've enjoyed everything. And so have I. Thanks All so right. much. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Just Folks Conversations with Emma on Anchor and Spotify. You can find more Just Folks Conversations with Emma on my YouTube channel of the same name. Please give a thumbs up and subscribe. And I invite you to join my Facebook group where you can meet more really great folks just like you. See you soon.